Uh, isn't that the reality that um, many times we find ourselves in the middle of a conversation that turns to uh, what we believe uh, at our essence is the most important thing, and we find ourselves unprepared? Now, I got a couple things about that this morning. One is on Wednesday nights this fall, starting on August 15th, there is going to be running through the fall an evangelism class where you can take that after dinner on Wednesday night. You can learn more about how to share your faith. You can learn more about how to prepare your testimony. And I'd encourage you to do that. That's part of our Harvester's curriculum. You can get more information of that at the Harvester's table after the service today. But as well as that, uh, I want to present to you what I introduced you to last week, and we're covering this week and next week. And this is, uh, I learned this from my Australian friends here, uh, a way that I present the gospel. And just because I am a visual person, uh, it is a very visual way. It is, it is something that, that I can do sitting across uh, a, the table at a coffee shop or a restaurant uh, with a pen and a napkin or a piece of paper. And if you were here last week, you saw this. Maybe you didn't get it. Here's your chance this week to follow along as I do it again for you. Uh, On the back of your bulletin or in your bulletin in the sermon notes, there's some room if you want to draw this along uh, with me. We'll find other ways to make this available. If you missed last week, this is going to go fast. I would not do it this fast in a normal conversation, but I'm going to give you the elevator version, the elevator speech version of how I would present the gospel, what I call the gospel on a napkin. I start very simply with a napkin or a piece of paper, and I divide it into six squares. And in my conversation or conversations, I essentially at some point want to address all six of these squares. And it begins with who God is. And I'm just going to use simple drawings, but I'm going to represent God by a crown. God The crown is God is the ruler. He is the ruler of the world. He made the world. He made everything in the world. And he made us. My crude little drawings of the stick figure, that's humanity, that's you and me and everybody who ever existed. He made us. He sustains us. And not only that, he made us to rule the world under him. Now, we see this all throughout Scripture, but just one Scripture that I might write down for them to look up later is Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord our God, it says. You are worthy to receive all glory, all honor, all power. Why? Because you created all things. And it's by your will that they are created, that we are created. And it is by your will that they have their being, that, that we continue to exist. It is only by God's will. This is reality, but is this how it is in the world when we look around us, when we look even to some degree at our own lives? No. What do we see around us? We see a very different picture. We see that we all reject the ruler God. And how do we reject him? We reject him by really simply wanting to live life our own way without him be our, little, our own little rulers, the little crown symbolizing, I want to run my life. But in doing that and trying to run life my own way without him, we make a mess of our lives, we make a mess of society, and we make a mess of the world. Again, we think of that 
we see that all through Scripture, but one Scripture I might write down for someone to look up later is Romans 3, 10 through 12, where Paul says, there's no one who's righteous. There is no one who does God. There is no or does good. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. And that is reality around us. That turning away God calls rebellion. What will God do about our rebellion? Well, the hard truth is that God will not endure or put up with our rebellion forever. That the punishment for our rebellion, our, our wanting to control our own lives and live life our own way without God, is death and judgment. And again, that's harsh, but that is the reality of Scripture. Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Now, God's judgment, God's justice sounds harsh, but the gospel doesn't end there, does it? In His great love, God sent His own Son into the world, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived perfectly under God's rule. Yet what did He do? He died in our place. And by dying in our place, He brought forgiveness. He took our punishment, and He brought forgiveness. Again, many places in Scripture, but the one that I might write down for them to look up later is 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous, that's Him for the unrighteous, that's you and me and every person who's ever lived, in order to bring us to God. And that's not all. Not only did He die, God raised Jesus to life again. God, in raising Him, made Jesus as ruler over the world. Jesus has been risen from the dead. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus gives new life. And Jesus will return to judge. And again, many places in Scripture we could go to, but 1 Peter 1.3 occurs to me, in His great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the dead, through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Where I'd want to move that conversation as I, as I unfold these, these five truths is to this final square. That really means, in response, there is only two ways to live in light of this truth. And the first is the old way. The first is the way that all of us naturally live, and that is to continue to be our own little kings, to be in control, to keep running life our own way without God. And in doing so, in rejecting Him as our our loving ruler, we are condemned by God. We are facing death and judgment. Or there is God's new way, and God's new way is to recognize that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is our King. To submit our lives to Him, to trust in what He has done in His death and resurrection, taking our punishment, taking our sins, to seek to follow Him. And in doing so, the result, we are forgiven by God, and we are given eternal life. Again, many scriptures I could share, but John 3.36 comes to mind. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see this eternal life, for God's wrath remains on him. And I would typically end a conversation or conversations with a question, which way are you living now? I'd ask you all to reflect on that this morning. Which of these two ways are you living now? 
which way do you want to live in light of all these truths? Well, that is just a very simple way, uh, like I call it, to present the gospel on a napkin. And uh, my main point this morning is not that you have to adopt the way that I share the gospel, but uh, do you have a, um, a, a gospel outline? Do you have a way that, that when those conversations come up that you can, you can share the gospel? You know, learning a gospel outline, first of all, this is a little bit review from last week, it will make sure that you have learned and you understand the basic truths of the gospel. Remember that our Christian faith is not just about what we feel, although feelings are part of it. It's not just about what we experience when we have a wonderful worship experience on a Sunday morning or at a concert or in a a small group, although our experience is part of it. Our Christian faith is based upon a historic set of truths. These were passed down to us. Somebody shared them with you if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And these truths are what save. This is how God communicates the saving power of the gospel. So first of all, you and I need to make sure we embrace these truths. And secondly, we need to make sure we are ready to pass these same truths on to someone else. A gospel outline helps make sure we can do that. A gospel outline helps give us the confidence to share the gospel when the opportunity arises. Rarely do we plan a gospel conversation. More typically, they're like what you saw in the video there. They come upon us when, when we're least expecting it. And if we're not ready, if we don't have a gospel outline that, that we can rely upon, where are we going to go in that conversation? We're going to get flustered uh, like that, that gentleman did. And a, learning a gospel outline keeps the conversation on track. It keeps it focused on what are the central issues There's so many directions a conversation about spiritual things could go off in. All important, but not essential to the truths of the gospel. Having a gospel outline gives me hooks to hang the conversation or conversations on that I know I need to have, that I want to have. So what are we doing this week? This week we are, well, last week we just went through the first two squares of that six-part gospel outline. Let me just briefly review these. Sharing the gospel begins with sharing who God is, because we cannot understand that when we're talking with God about someone, that, that they are thinking of the same God that we are. And so the gospel, understanding God, that's the first box we represent with that drawing that He is the God who created everything that exists in the world and He created us. That's Paul sharing that to the Athenians in a, in a culture where they worshiped many gods. Paul says, no, you got to get this, Paul says in Acts 17. He, the God I'm talking about, is the God who made the world and everything in it. He, this God, is the God who gives all men life and breath and everything else. And again, I don't have to be an artist to do this, but when I draw that little circle representing a globe, when I draw that little stick figure representing humanity, I'm trying to make the point. The God we worship is the God who made everything and made you and made me and is responsible for our ongoing existence. And not only that, this God that we, we are talking about, we're sharing about, He's given us, He's given the human race a special role. That special role is to be rulers of all creation, all the world under Him. Not rulers in the sense of consuming it, not rulers in the sense of despoiling it, but, but stewards of it 
to responsibly manage it. Psalm 8 tells us that above all the other creatures that he created, he gave, God gave mankind honor and majesty by appointing them to rule over all of his creation as his stewards. That's the God I want to share. And so there is only one rightful response. If this is true that God made you and me and made everything, if this is true that God is responsible even if your heart continues to beat 60 seconds from now, then there's only one rightful response. And we see that in Revelation 4.11. You, Lord God, you are worthy to receive all glory, all honor, all power. Why? Because you created all things. And it's only by your will that they were created and they have their being. And so that's why I even use a crown in this drawing is is, uh, he is my loving father, but he is my ruling king. He's a good and loving king, but he is my king. And as our king, it means that I'm to honor him as my creator and my sustainer. It means that I am to live, we are to live our lives in every way for his glory, not our glory. And it means that we are to acknowledge his power, his authority over us in our lives. That's the first box. The second box, is this how it is now? Is this what people do? Look at the world around us? Look at your own life? Is this what we all do? No. And that leads us from understanding God to understanding sin. Sin is not the list of do's and don'ts that none of us can perfectly keep. That's not sin. Sin at its essence is this. We all want to live life our own way. We want to call the shots. We want to be in control. If God will get behind me and help me do what I want to do, that's great. He can come on board. But even if God doesn't want to get behind me, I will live life my own way without God. And that, brothers and sisters, is the essence of sin. Really, we are all all of us, just like the people described in the very last verse of the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, some of us may do that in more socially acceptable ways than others, but that's our basic motivation. I want to do what feels right to me. I want to do what, what puts me in the driver's seat of my life. And so, Really, what we're saying is, God, I'm not going to live for your honor and glory. I'm going to live for my honor and glory. What we're really saying is, God, I don't acknowledge your power, your authority over my life. I want the power over my life. In other words, I want the control to decide what I can and cannot do. By doing that, by having that in our heart and our mind, we reject God's rule. And in rejecting God as our king, rejecting his honor, his glory, his power, God considers that rebellion. That's that's the essence of Romans 3 there. None of us naturally seek God. All of us turn away. Now, some of us do this very defiantly, and we can see people all around us who do this with a raised, clenched fist against God. But many more of us do this very subtly. I like what Patrick Morley says that most of us, we practice kind of a passive sort of self-reliance. We don't openly rebel against God, but we don't really seek His counsel, and we often shun His advice because we, at our essence, want to do our own thing. And that is the very definition of turning away from God 
and God calls any form of turning away from Him as rebellion, as the essence of sin. Now, that's a skim over of those first two boxes. I went a little deeper last week. If you're interested in hearing more about those two boxes and the truths that that support them, you can go online and you can watch the the video from last week's sermon. This morning, I want to expand on the third and fourth boxes. And then next week, we'll finish up with the fifth and the sixth box. So the third box, we not only need to understand who God is, to get the gospel, to share the gospel. We not only need to understand sin, we need to understand judgment. Because as I shared earlier, God will not let us rebel forever. We may not feel that coming, but the reality is that God will not let us continue in this path forever of living life our own way without Him. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is patient with you, One of the versions says, the Lord is long-suffering. In other words, He puts up with us way longer than you or I would put up with anybody who is rebelling against us like we rebel against God. Think of all the godless rebellion in the world that God puts up with right now, that God does not bring judgment upon. Think Think of the rebellion in your own life that God has, you know, spared your life. You're still alive today in spite of many of the things that you did that were in rebellion against Him. Why would God patiently endure all our rebellion? Why would He delay bringing judgment? Because, as Peter says, He truly does not want anyone to perish. And if you're here this morning and you're still in a state of rebellion, you're still trying to live life your own way on your own terms, God does not want you to perish. God has given you an opportunity even this morning because He is patient and loves you and does not want you to perish, He desires that everyone would come to repentance to recognize Him as their loving Lord. But here's the truth that Peter says, His patience has a limit. The day of the Lord is coming. Again, whole other sermon on the day of the Lord, but that's, that's that symbol throughout Scripture that judgment is coming, that, that, that day when He's going to bring your final accounting to right, right, right to your doorstep. And that that day of judgment, it will come not when you plan for it, not when you think it's coming. It will come, Peter says, like a thief, like a thief in the night. None of us know when our house is going to be broken into. None of us plan to meet the thief in our living room because the thief comes at night when we're least expecting it. Peter says that's how judgment will sneak up on many, many people. God's punishment for our rebellion when that day of the Lord comes is death and judgment. Again, Hebrews 9, 27, we're all destined to die once. And after we die, if we die in that state of, I've been in control of my life, we face judgment. Now, I want to be real clear here this morning about what I mean about judgment. And, and if you're a believer, I, I think we need to be really clear when we share the gospel about this, because Judgment is the most neglected part of the gospel in most churches and in most of our conversations about Jesus, because it's hard. But, But here's the truth. The truth about judgment is really the truth about this question, what happens when you die? If you die and you have been running your life your own way without God, or with God at least in the back seat, what is it that you face? What is what is it that happens when you die? 
Well, Jesus himself answers this question, and he's a storyteller, and he illustrates many of his truth and stories, and he answers this question, I think, in two stories about two different men. The first story, uh, both of them I'm just going to briefly summarize, but the first story of the first man we find in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. Let me read. Jesus told them a parable, a story. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and I'll store all my grain and my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Now let me give you the cultural equivalent of this. If, and especially if I stop the story right here. This is a man that we, we, we would all admire if we met him in society. This is a man who has made wise business decisions. This is a man who has made good financial investments. This is a man who is financially prepared to live his future uh, with, with no worries, at least in terms of his financial and economic security. This is somebody that, that we coach people. Do your financial planning, plan your career, plan your occupation so you can be like this man. And you can get to the end of your life and you have enough saved up and you've got all your plans locked in place so that you can enjoy life. Isn't that what our culture prepares us all to do? And that's what we see. This man now feels secure enough not only to retire, but he's going to retire in style. He's going to enjoy all that he has accumulated. He's going to enjoy the, the, the things and the experiences that the money that he has saved up can buy. You know, if we stop the story here, I'd envy this man. This is, this is who I want to be if we stop the story here. But Jesus sees a very different picture of this man. And, and I think there's a question implied in what Jesus goes on to say. And really, that's a question for all of us. This is a question for every one of us. And I'd phrase that implied question like this. Are you planning for the future without planning for eternity? Are you making all your plans, retirement, financial plans, occupational plans, but you haven't thought about what lies after you die? You haven't thought about eternity in your planning. I mean, that's what this man's focus is. He, he's all about getting prepared for his earthly retirement. He's, he's all about finding life and, and his material security and, and in the comfort that he's going to have as he can buy all the things that he now wants. And the enjoyment that he thinks he's going to experience. But clearly, as Jesus will go on to say in a minute, he fails to consider one vitally important question. What if I'm not alive to enjoy it? What if I've saved all of this up? What if I've made all of these plans and then I die before I can enjoy it? That's a vitally important question. That's why Jesus goes on to say he shows us how foolish, and that's the word Jesus uses, not mine, how foolish it is to plan only for our future economically and occupationally and for retirement without planning for eternity. Verse 20, God says to him, this man who's now got everything set for his, his, his future, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. You won't get to enjoy all you've worked for. In fact, all you've worked for, all you've saved up, who, who will get everything you work for? You won't get it. 
You can't take it with you, Jesus is saying. Let me say this to all of you, in case you're here and, and, and the gospel isn't really real to you yet. You can have the best retirement all planned. You could have mapped out your occupational career perfectly. You can have retirement plans. You can have your bucket list for the places that you want to go and the experiences that you want to have. But if you've done all that without planning for where you will spend eternity, Jesus says you're a fool. Why? Because you may suddenly be found facing eternity without any warning. It may come upon you, your death, like a thief in the night. Uh, consider the, the reality. None of us know when our earthly life will come to an end. And no amount of your financial planning, no amount even of exercise and physical fitness and eating right can ultimately prevent the day of your death from coming. And for most of us, it will come when we are not expecting it and we've not prepared for it and we're not ready for it. And what will happen when we die? When what eternity awaits us when we die, having lived our life our own way without God, calling the shots in our own life. Well, Jesus shows that to us in his story of the second man, also in Luke, but in Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day, and at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Now, there's more context to this story. I don't have time to go into it this morning, but let me just make a few summary points for us before I go on. This man was rich, but that's not his problem, all right? Being rich, having wealth by itself is not sinful. That's not what gets this man into trouble. The picture that Jesus gives us of this man is that he uses that wealth, he uses those riches to live for himself in spite of the fact that God has put other people right in front of him, that God wants him to use those resources to help. That's, that's what we see. He lives in luxury, indulging himself, but he sees those in need right in front of him, like Lazarus the beggar who was laying at his gate. He had to cross by this guy or maybe step over this guy every day, and yet he consciously chooses to ignore that need. He has the resources to meet this need, and he ignores that need. And I'm sure there's other things about this man's life, but that alone shows you who he's living for. Who is it that he lives his life for? He lives it for himself. And that is the essence of living our own way without God. I want to live life for myself. What does Jesus tell us that happened that he began to experience when his eyes closed in death and then opened. Verse 22, the rich man died and was buried. And verse 23, immediately after dying, uh, when his eyes opened, he finds himself in hell where there was torment, where he was in torment. Verse 24 even expresses this, I'm in agony in this flame. And there's symbolism here, and I don't have time to get into all of that. So, you know, I, I don't want us to make more of this than it is, but the idea of torment and the idea of agony are very real here. The idea, in other words, of conscious suffering. Now, I'm sure an element of that suffering is physical, but I'm sure an element of that suffering is mental anguish. I mean, you read that story and you see he can see into heaven. He can see what it's like. He can see what the people are enjoying, and yet he knows he doesn't get to enjoy that. And you read the story further and you see that 
He has loved ones, like we all have loved ones, who he knows faces the very same fate that, that he does because they're living their lives their own way without him. And he's in anguish because he can do nothing about that, having experienced what he now experiences. So here's the reality of what happens when you die if you've been living your life your own way without God. And I know this is blunt, but I got to say it. You will experience immediate conscience, conscious torment in hell. Now, you know, at this point, you know why so few people and so few churches talk about judgment when they talk about the gospel, because this, this sounds harsh. This, this is totally politically incorrect. But let me give you an analogy. If I'm watching a bunch of children riding on a school bus, and I see that that school bus is headed towards a cliff, and I'm worrying about offending the bus driver by yelling out, you're going to go off the cliff. I, I got a problem, don't I? Out of love, I need to do whatever it takes to tell about the danger, the peril that they are facing. And that is what we do when we tell somebody about judgment, about what they will face if they die in that state of living their own life, their own way, without God. You know, some people object to even the concept of hell. Well, Jesus is all about love. I'd point out simply what's been better said by R.C. Sproul than me. Virtually every statement in the Bible concerning hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. And we cannot take Jesus seriously without also taking seriously what he says regarding eternal punishment. So this is as much the part of the gospel that Jesus delivered as the part about forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus tells us in this story in Luke 16 that the choice of entering hell, you and I, we make it in this life. I mean, we get that in, in, in that man's plea in hell. I have five brothers. I, I want to warn them of what awaits them so they don't end up in this place of torment. What does that tell us? He now gets it. He now gets that it's too late for him to repent. And he knows his, his loved ones, his brothers, are, are living like he was living. And they are oblivious to what awaits them if they don't repent. And so he has this desire to warn them because he knows they need to hear the message, repent before it's too late. Be Repent before you die. The choice of entering heaven or hell we make in this life. And Jesus tells us that once we die, there's no second chance. Once in hell, you're there forever. When, when this man asks about anyone being able to cross between hell or heaven, he's told, verse 26, a great chasm has been fixed between us so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. What does that tell us? There's no second chance. What does it tell us? That, you know, even if you're from a Catholic background, there's no purgatory. There's no intermediate state. You can work your way out of hell. No, Jesus says there's no crossing. Once you're in hell, you're there forever. Once we die, our eternal destiny is fixed. And so the decisions that you and I make in this life result in a judgment that is determinative and final. Now, God's judgment sounds harsh, I know. But there's more to the message of the gospel. And this is the fourth box. We not only need to understand who God is. We not only need to understand sin. We not only need to understand judgment. We need to understand the cross. 
What is it that is so unique and so powerful about the cross? Even though God's judgment sounds harsh, God in His great love for us sent His Son into the world to save us. You've been in church any length of time. You know this verse, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. In other words, borrowing Peter's words, because God does not want anyone to perish, because God desires that every one of us would repent before we die, He acted, He took the initiative to provide a way that we could be saved from the judgment that awaits us for our rebellion. He sent His Son And I'm not talking about a son like I have sons, that they're not the same person as me, that they're just descendants of me. This is is God. This is the second person of the Godhead, God the Son. He took upon Himself full humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So as God's Son, Jesus Christ was fully divine. Jesus claims this about Himself. John 12, He who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. If you look at me, Jesus says, you are looking at God. And that is important because if Jesus had not been fully divine, what He did on the cross, that would have been no more effective to save you than if I died for you. I, a fallen sinful man, I can't by even my sacrificial death do anything to save you. It took one who was fully divine. And yet being divine, He came as a man. He took on full humanity so that He could stand in our place. He could be a genuine substitute for our sinful human race. And as a man, He did what none of us have ever been able to do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Hebrews 4, He was tempted in every way, just like you and I are tempted, with one crucial difference. He never sinned. He was without sin. So Jesus, coming as a man, lived the life we were created to live in relationship with God, the life none of us have ever been able to live. He lived perfectly under God's rule, God's authority. He always did what God wanted him to do. And that's why he can stand in our place as a perfect substitute, as a sacrifice. He died in our place, taking the punishment for our rebellion as human beings individually and, and, and as for the whole human race. First Peter 3.18, I've already mentioned this verse, but Christ died for our sins once for all. He, he died for the sins of the people who lived a thousand years ago. If, if he, if he re- waits another thousand years to, to return, he'll die for all the sins of all the people, or he died for all the sins of all the people that will put their faith in him during that time. He did it because He is righteous, dying for us and our unrighteousness. He did it to bring us to God. One last point. Why is this necessary? Why why punishment? I mean, couldn't God just let this go? Couldn't couldn't God say, yeah, you've rebelled against me, but you know what? I'm going to ignore it. Not the God that we represent. Not the God who is described in the Bible. If you think about those first two boxes, a God who made everything, who sustains everything, who wants us to be in intimate relationship with Him, how could He in His perfection, how could He in His holiness and His righteousness ignore us turning our backs on Him? 
I mean, very practically, if I was able to make a, a small planet and populate it with people, and I was responsible for that, that planet and all those people living and staying in existence, and I could look down and I could see all those people shaking their fist at me or turning their backs on me, you know what I'd be tempted to do? Or fling, you know, I, I'd be done with it. That is uh, what God is entitled to do by His righteous holiness, but that is not what He did do. He cannot overlook our rebellion. Uh, we do, by our rebellion, incur His perfect holy wrath. That's why Jesus came to stand in our place. Jesus observe, absorbs the full force of God's wrath for all your sin, for all my sin, for all the sin of everyone who puts their faith in Him. Romans 3, God presents him, presented Him as a propitiation, as a satisfaction of all the wrath through faith in His blood to demonstrate that He is a righteous God. So let me close with this. What does this mean for you today? You know, if you already know the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I hope what it means for you today is it gives you a deeper appreciation for the gospel that saved you. It gives you a deeper uh, compulsion to share the gospel in all of its truth. But maybe you're here today, and, and this is somewhat new to you. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time or, you know, very little amount of time, and these truths are, are new to you, and, and you recognize you are that person. You have been living life your own way without God. Let me leave you with this. Your choice of entering heaven or hell is made in this life. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he, saved his own, that he gave his only one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You have a choice, even this morning, whether you're going to believe in him, whether you're going to believe in this gospel. And that choice is, is determinative of whether you will perish when you die and be like that man suffering in torment in hell in Luke 16, or whether you will have eternal life, whether you will, like Lazarus in the part of the story I didn't have time to go into, enjoy eternal life in heaven. You can only make that choice in this life. And if you go out of here today and you're killed in a car accident or you die tomorrow of some disease, after you die, it will be too late to make that choice. So how about this? You can make that choice of entering heaven right now. You do not know whether, however young or old you are, you do not know when your life will end. You can make that choice right now, and you can be sure. Paul says to us through 2 Corinthians 6, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. In other words, God in His patience is still extending to you that offer. Now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Today is the day to be sure. Today is the day to make that choice. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. As we close today, there will be people in the back, and there'll be people up at the front, and they're willing to confidentially talk with you. They're willing to pray with you to help you make sure that you have made the right choice. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your gospel. Um, Lord, I, I just thank you for 
when you reached down into my life and you convicted me of my rebellion and how I was living my life my own way without you. And, and you showed me the truth of that, and you showed me the eternity that I would face apart from you. And I'm so thankful that you sent Jesus to be my Savior. And I'm so thankful that you raised him to be my king. And I just pray for anyone here, Lord, who has not experienced that. I pray, Lord, that you, you would bring them to that point of conviction and they would be sure today they would make that choice. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.